Michelle and Jason, I want to thank you for uh, mentioning that prayer request because I think it is very important how you start off that chapter in life. And I think that the Word of God today, unprepared, is meant for you. And Mike, you as well. I'm mentioning uh, the, uh, the men leading homes. So important. The family home. I am absolutely convinced that the family home is a most important investment. The family home, it's a place of first impressions. It's where a young child first watches and learns what it means to be a man or to be a woman. It's where we form our first attachments. It's where we form our first language, our tone, our patterns of speech. It's all caught within the family home. Sadly, if you are a sarcastic person and keep people on edge with your words, odds are you probably caught it from someone in your home. Or if you are a person of encouragement, my guess is that it was your mother or father who first spoke words of encouragement to you. Even the practical things, what you eat, how you eat, what you drink, what you play, how you play, even how you pray, it is all learned within the family home. So before I move on, I, I really want to make sure I say this um, to all of you who are home strengtheners, who are truly investing in your family home. Please hear my simple but most sincere words. Your work in the family home is extremely important. The family home should be the safest place on earth. Jody, my wife, and I have, uh, from time to time, come up with a family vision statement for our family, using different words from different time, and we've always come back, come back down to this, a safe haven, right? Uh, we want our home and our family to be the safest place on earth. But I'm not naive. I know that for many families and for many different reasons, the family home is not a safe place. Conflicts, they don't get resolved. And children, we never grow up learning how to solve little problems before they become big problems. And instead of a unifying spirit in our home, usually a divisive spirit rules the family home. And sadly, it gets passed from one generation to the next. The book of the Bible that we're going to read today speaks of parents who did not make their home a safe place. The book of Obadiah, it's a warning to us what can happen and what did happen and what will happen when parents do not teach their children to solve problems. It turns brother against brother and, as Obadiah will show us, nation against nation. Obadiah, it is the shortest book in the Old Testament, only 21 verses, but it carries a big punch. And here's the punch that needs to hit us today. Unresolved conflict never goes away. 
Obadiah's warning to us. It's God's warning to us. If you don't address the conflict in your home, in your family, even in yourself, your issues will be passed to your children and your children's children even long after you're gone. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And the book of Obadiah, a very fit training book for us today. First, I'm going to begin with a little bit of context. I think it will help you understand the book of Obadiah well. Next, we will read the very word of God. It's a, it's a sad picture of unresolved anger that is turned dangerous. And it's a warning for us today. And lastly, Obadiah tells us the way of escape. I think you'll find what Obadiah writes most interesting. So a little context, what unresolved anger looks like, and then the way of escape. So before we begin, I know we prayed already, but I think this is probably the most important thing of a sermon. Um, Would you please join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, help my friends please learn from this wonderful book of the Bible. I really want that for them. Heavenly Father, open our minds, open our minds to see your word. That is the Holy Spirit's help, and we need it. Our minds are so distracted, our issues, our self-focused pride, it is so messy, and we don't see it, but we need to see it because it grieves you. So God, please help Obadiah be a most relevant book for us today. All that we learn, all that we apply, may it truly be for your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, we confidently and humbly pray. Amen. So first, a little context, why God raised up Obadiah for a message for us to hear today. Just like I mentioned, much of life patterns begin in the family. And the Bible, especially the history books, show us many family patterns from which we can learn. In the very first book of the Bible, we read of Abraham and his wife Sarah, The child they had together in their old age, Isaac. Isaac grew up, and the scriptures tell us that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. But it wasn't until Isaac was 60 years old that he and Rebekah were able to have children. 20 years. Two long decades. Think about how long 20 years is. Isaac and Rebekah wanted to have children, but they couldn't. I'm sure some of us can relate. But after two decades of struggling, Rebekah, ironically, gives birth to two struggling twins. The first child came out looking red. Perhaps the skin was looking reddish. And his body looking like a hairy coat. They called his name Esau, which means hairy or rough. Esau the red, a rough and skilled hunter, the pride of his father, a man of the field and outdoors. The second second younger twin who was born, Jacob, 
came out with his hand grabbing his older twin's heel. So his parents named him just that, the heel grabber or the cheater. And that's what the name Jacob means. Jacob wasn't anything like his older brother. In fact, the Bible calls him a quiet man, dwelling in tents. But the worst part of this story is what is written in a short little sad sentence in Genesis 25:28. A short little sentence that maybe might have described your home when you were a kid. Isaac, the father, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It's the home of parents who play family favorites. Jacob always wanting his, fam- his father's approval. Of course, he lives up to the name that he's been called all of his life. Jacob steals his father's blessing with the help of his mother. Jacob plots and connives to get his brother's birthright. And the wedge between these two brothers grows deep. Lots of problems left unresolved. And like a lot of families still nowadays, the brothers head off in different directions in life start new families in different lands. Esau and his children vow revenge because they were cheated. It's true. But a dangerous and deceptive attitude of pride grows deep in Esau and his descendants. A resentment so deep that centuries later, even Moses coming out of Egypt with a mass exodus of Jacob's descendants could not pass through Esau's land. Unresolved conflict, as you can see. It never goes away. First slide, please, Joel. The map you can see is a picture of Israel at the time when Obadiah wrote this message. About a thousand years after Esau and Jacob lived, Jacob's descendants, still very much alive and well in the tribe of Judah, the region of Jerusalem. They still carry on God's promised blessing through Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise to be a blessing to all nations. The older brother Esau, his descendants live south, southeast of Israel. The name of Esau's tribe, as you can see, Edom. Edom means red. It sounds like the Hebrew word we have for red, which is Adam. Adam sounds like Edom. Red like their father Esau, red like the soil, and its people are still red hot with unresolved anger. Next slide, please. If you've ever visited Israel and drove east to its border towards Jordan, maybe you've visited the famous area of Petra. Petra is the location of Edom's old capital city. High mountain red cliffs. So in 586 BC, at least that's what we think this time was, when the nation of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar II violently attacked Jerusalem and surrounded it and starved it out for 18 months straight, the older brother who should have been there wasn't there to help. Edom should have been there for Judah. And this is why God raised up Obadiah to write this scathing letter to Edom. God 
does not tolerate unresolved conflict among brothers. So without any more delay, let's read the word of God. Obadiah, chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, Esau's descendants. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. You heard it right. This is a battle cry and a declaration of war, and it comes from God. He utterly despises the arrogance of an older brother. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Joe, can you put the picture up real quick again? Like you can see, these uh, Edomite homes, the high mountain cliffs, some are 5,000 feet above sea level. Obadiah calls them like a nest among the stars. They're high and not easily entered just like the state of their hearts. I hope you realize it's not the home that's the problem. It's the attitude within. You can live in a general's quarters. You can live in the barracks, but a prideful spirit in the home turns everything sour. And Edom's pride was deceptive. They thought they were invincible. They thought they were the wise men, the mighty ones up in these high lefty cliffs. And in verse 8, you can read it with me. God spoke a most terrifying word. He says, I will destroy the wise men of Edom. I will destroy understanding out of Mount Esau. Your mighty men will be dismayed. Though it's close to about 3,000 years since Obadiah wrote this letter, I wonder if God still removes wisdom from arrogant nations. Does God remove wisdom? Does God remove understanding, even the mighty men of a nation, when it's become prideful? I hope that we always are the kind of nation that is like the stained glass window you see behind me. Always teachable. Always have a bended knee. I think that's why the United States has prospered in the past, honestly. I believe that we have shared a concern for our brother nations, like our brother Israel, our brothers in Asia, our brothers in Europe. I think God is pleased when nations and brothers help one another, when we stand up to bullies who want to attack. 
The rest of Obadiah's message describes just how horrible Esau has treated his younger brother, how Edom has treated Judah. In verse 10 and 11, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, Esau stood and watched the violence happen. Esau stood aloof. To be aloof means to remove yourself and to keep your distance. And that's exactly what Edom did. Obadiah doesn't give us the actual details of what the violence looked like. But Jeremiah did. As you listen, if you can, imagine you were there. From Lamentations chapter 2. He killed all who were delightful in our eyes. He has passed out his fury like fire. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Their mothers cry out, where is bread? They faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city and their life is poured out on their mother's breast. It's Jerusalem. 586 B.C. for 18 months. I don't know when the last time you were able to hear a deep, sobbing cry. A deep, gut-level cry. Hopefully not too often. Um, but I, uh, I heard it this past week in the cemetery. A, uh, a wife and a daughter who buried their favorite man in the world a man who, who really died way too early. But that was just one family. Imagine yourself in Jerusalem, a city as large as Jerusalem, hearing those kind of sounds, and then to stand by and do nothing, <laughs> to stand aloof. That is what Edom has done, and that why unresolved anger is so arrogant, and that's why God writes this scathing letter about a brother who does not stand to help his younger brother. In verse 11, please read along if you can. Edom also allowed foreigners and strangers to enter the gates of Jerusalem. Arrogant people have no respect for boundaries. They don't. They treat people like property. They treat people like they're a gate. They don't respect boundaries. That's why. <laughs> We teach our children to respect boundaries, to respect physical boundaries, to, to respect sexual boundaries. Some things are holy, and arrogant people do not respect boundaries. Verse 11, we also read right here that foreigners entered these gates, and they cast lots for Jerusalem. Casting lots. It's just a game just like the soldiers did for Jesus' clothes at the cross, right? To arrogant people, it's all just a game. In verse 12, we read a string of eight consecutive do-nots. God says, Do not gloat over your brother, 
Do not rejoice over your brother in his ruin. Do not boast. Do not enter his gates. Repeat it again. Do not gloat. Repeat it again. Do not loot his wealth. It's stealing. And in other words, it's so ironic. He tells Edom, Edom, do not steal from the one who also stole from you. Two wrongs don't make it right. And then verse 14, a very sad verse. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. While the people are running out of Jerusalem, while they're running for their lives, while they're running from just for to get out of town, what does Esau do to his younger brother? He stands at the crossroads and cuts them off. Arrogant people have no concern for the helpless. Maybe that's why people don't like reading the book of Obadiah very often. It's a, uh, it is a kind of a depressing book. But we all do need to stop and think about the questions that God has us learn from this book. How do we treat our brother? And how do we treat our sister? Especially about those who have wronged us in the past. Maybe someone, maybe God will bring someone to mind today. But even on a bigger picture, how does God's word, how does God's word influence our foreign policy? How do we help other brother nations in need, even when they've wronged us in the past? And what family patterns am I not seeing? Um, in what way am I standing by on the sidelines, sidelines, watching violence taking place and standing aloof? And of course, um, the question I think that is maybe at the forefront, how are we prideful? The hard part, though, is I think that uh, pride and arrogance is a disease that you cannot get rid of. I know I've tried. I can't do it. It's, it's so deep in my blood. It's in my mind. It's, it's, in, it's, it's sin. It's so run deep. It runs so deep. Um, but what is so fortunate about this beautiful book is that Obadiah shows us a way of escape. It's the escape of of God's wrath against our pride, which we deserve, because we all have stood aloof. We've not all been the brother or sister we need to be. And Obadiah 17, just a real beautiful nugget verse. God writes, In Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. In Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And the house of Jacob... The house of Jacob will possess their own possessions. The rest of the book describes um, how, how Jacob, the house of Jacob, will, will flourish and God's kingdom will be in all directions, north, south, east, and west. But did you catch the way of escape? It's not mounting more energy to become more humble. It's not mounting up the determination to be a better person. It's Mount Zion. Mount Zion, it's the prominent mount in Jerusalem and always has been described as the holy, the dwelling place of God. And it's the way of escape. And those who escape, what does the text tell us? 
the house of Jacob. This past week, um, I had a great time at uh, Vacation Bible School. I really did. I met this, um, ironically, I met this little boy named Jacob. And it's probably because I was preparing for this sermon, and, uh, you know, what's the meaning of Jacob, and he who grabs the heel, I was really thinking about it all this week. And so I caught this little boy. He was probably only seven or eight years old. And I, and I said, hey, Jacob, do you know what your name means? And he goes, no, I don't. And um, I said, well, I'll tell you what, Jacob. If you can find out what your name is and what your name means, I'll give you a dollar. So Jacob goes along, and then he comes back the next day. And uh, I say, Jacob, did you find out what your name means? And he's only, you know, a really young guy. He pulls out this paper just like this. He opens it up. You could tell that his mom wrote it down for him. He, and he pulls it up, and he goes, the one who grabs the heel. And I'm like, Jacob, do you, you know what that means? You know what that expression means? And he goes, no. And I said, well, it means, that, uh, it means that you're a cheater. It means cheater. Jacob means cheater. And he goes, so you're saying that I'm a cheater. But then the, like, the VBS leader takes him off. He runs off to his classroom. And I'm like, I, I didn't get to like, stop him. And I'm thinking, you know, you know he's going to go home. He's going to say, his parents are going to say, so, Jacob, what did you learn in VBS today? And uh, the chaplain told me that I'm a cheater. Um, so I caught Jacob the next day, and I said, um, I wanted to tell him, I wanted to tell him, Jacob, God loves cheaters. Um, but more importantly, I think I was able to also tell him, and he learned this, that the house of Jacob, which is related to the house of Judah, which is related to the house of David, the house of Solomon, the house of Joseph, it all comes down to the house of Jesus. And Jacob is great, 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 great grandfather is the house of Jesus. Those who escape, it's those who are in the right house. And we as Christians have an exceptional older brother in our house, don't we? Jesus, he takes cheaters like us and he brings us into a new house and he gives us a new name like he did for Jacob. Jacob was given Israel. By the way, I think it wouldn't be really great if whenever we become a Christian that God gives us a new name. Wouldn't that be good? I think it's a biblical life, honestly. But uh, we also have a brother who does not stand aloof. He pursues us. Our, when others loot and steal from us, when they steal blessings, Jesus, he, you know it, he gives us true wealth. And Jesus, our brother, he shares with us his home. Jesus says, abide in me. That means make your home in me. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Almost done, but I, you know, during this past presidential election, um, the candidates, they all made it about the economy, right? And I think they're right. Um, it is all about the economy. If you understand what the word economy really means. We get the word economy from the Greek word Oikonomia, 
oikos meaning home, right? Nomia meaning law of, oikonomia, the law of the home. And Jesus, our brother, has a law of the home for us. It's how brothers and sisters like us need to solve problems so we don't have them unresolved. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him what's fault, you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen them, tell it to the church, and on and on. Jesus also has a law of the house of worship, does he not? So if you are in worship and you bring your offering to the gift, in the gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and first go be reconciled to your brother. My challenge for all of us, myself included, if we have a brother who is against us, or we have a brother who has something against us, before we come back next Sunday, make it right with your brother. Then you will worship with genuine spirit, I think. I have one last slide to show you. It's the law of the family home and our family home. It's something that Jody and I learned over the years, and I just wanted to pass it on to you because I think it's so helpful. And I really wish every family would have this economy, the law of their home. We try to resolve conflict well. We don't just say, I'm sorry. In fact, we break down it by saying four steps. We say, I'm sorry I did this specific thing to hurt you. It was wrong because of this reason. In the future, I will do this. And then will you please forgive me? If Isaac had done it years and years ago, he would have said, I'm sorry that I favored you as the over your older brother. It was wrong because each person in our home is equally important. In the future, I will treat you and your brother equally. I will make an effort to, to maybe talk to you each week and ask you how you're doing. And the last question, will you please forgive me? That's how you resolve conflict. And that's how we're going to fix the economy in our nation, right? <laughs> it all starts with the family home. It's true, most family patterns begin in the family home, but they don't have to end that way. Just remember the gospel. God is our heavenly father, the parent we never had. He resolved conflict, and the proof we have, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the most power display, powerful display that God has shown is that he goes to extraordinary lengths to resolve conflict. Would you please pray with me?